It has been said that one can always choose their friends, but that they can't choose their family. Well, that saying is not entirely true, for my guest today chose her family. It was a family that was fond of hallucinogenic drugs, orgies, and conducting murders. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, it's panic in America. Today's conversation is not suitable for all listeners. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Cease to exist. Just come and say you love me. Give up your work. Listen to this music. Come on, you can. The singer isn't exceptional, but on the other hand, he isn't bad. But he was evil. You see, the balladeer is Charles Manson. And exactly one year to the day of this recording being made, Charles Manson would order Tex Watson and other members of his so-called family to strangle, lacerate, and stab multiple times their victims to death, including the eight-and-a-half-month pregnant actress, Sharon Tate. But I know we all get our turn. I love you. It is my delight to have Diane Lake on Watching America. Diane Lake has certainly had an exceptional life. At the age of 14, she encountered a man who would be thought of and continues to be thought of as one of the most evil and lecherous, dangerous, murderous persons on earth. And I speak of Charles Manson. She was the youngest member of the Manson family. Now, it's important to note that she had nothing to do with the murders, but she knew those who committed the crimes, and she certainly knew, well, Charles Manson extremely well. Her book is entitled Member of the Family, My Story of Charles Manson, Life Inside His Cult, and The Darkness That Ended the 1960s. Diane Lake, welcome to Watching America. Thank you for having me. I want to begin with your initial years. You had rather, and I presume well-meaning, I I, I like to think of most people on this planet as uh, being well-meaning, although we know, obviously, that they're not always that. But you had well-meaning parents who were, to put it mildly, rather indulgent in that uh, they were very much involved with the counterculture, embraced it, and moreover, set you free, gave you license to go and do practically anything you wanted to. At the time, did you appreciate that? I thought I did. (laughs) (laughs) But most of what I've discovered, having had three teenagers myself and then now, you know, encountered other teenage relationships, teenagers have a tendency to think they know it all anyway, (laughs) you know, and that they're, what do they need parents for? You know, their friends provide all the information that they need. So I don't think I was probably any different than your typical teenager in that I thought that I thought I could handle it. 
Well, you were different in that you had parents who, if I understand correctly, um, didn't disavow the idea of you doing LSD or, or experimenting with marijuana. I mean, that in of itself is quite exceptional. Did your parents take drugs in front of you? Yeah. I mean, my parents were really the ones that introduced me to uh, marijuana and LSD. I took my first acid trip in my own living room. How old were you then? Uh, 13. 13. Okay, so it really started to happen then. Why do you suppose your parents embraced it? I mean, did they, formally going back a generation, were they normal, middle-of-the-road, middle America, um, pretty conservative folk, or did they suddenly flip out and get involved in the counterculture, or were they formerly beatniks? How do you understand that? <laughs> I think that uh, they were, you know, relatively normal, middle America, you know, mid uh, grew up midwestern and um but my dad wanted to be an artist and he went to art school and after he got out of korea and uh, he was in the korean conflict and it, i think it was in art school that he heard about you know the beatniks in san francisco and he really he was interested uh, he used to read all the books, you know, Allen Ginsberg and Ken Kesey and all mm -hmm. the beatniks, and he wanted to, he wanted to go there. But my mom got turned on to marijuana by a couple down the street, and she brought it home to my dad, and that was, you know, that was the beginning of this enlightenment, you know, and then. Timothy Leary was, you know, touting LSD as this, you know, panacea for right. world peace yes. and all of that. And so, uh, you know, my my dad got on the bandwagon and he started doing art for this uh, commune called the Oracle, which mm -hmm. uh, they were producing the Oracle Underground newspaper for Los Angeles. And he was doing some of their posters and stuff. And then they lost their lease, moved in with us. They got the idea, oh, let's, you know, we've tuned in, and now let's drop out, you know. Right, and so they, right. my dad and another guy got bread trucks and converted them to campers, and, and away we went. <laughs> so in a sense, be before you even got out to the ranch with the family, you kind of had uh, a prototype experience of that already by the time you were 13. Oh, exactly, Yeah. So, Diane, there was a point that you had your initial contact with Charles Manson. You were introduced to him by a friend or by a friend's recommendation. And was the first time you saw him uh, in a, a situation where he was actually playing the guitar? Did you hear him play the guitar for the first time? Yes, I, I did. I, I walked into this house called the Spiral Staircase House, which I had actually lived in previously and I walked up the stairs and and a group of people in a circle Charlie's playing the guitar but instantly a couple of the girls got up and ran to me you know like shouting my name Diane Diane and then Charlie Diane is here and I I was just totally floored because I didn't know these people and I didn't know that they knew me I mean as far as I knew I was just being introduced to these, you know, these people by by a couple of friends. So was it a setup already? Did your friends say, hey, I'm going to be bringing Diane by. Let's all make a fuss of her. As it turned out, I mean, the backstory is that um, Charlie 
and the girls had gone up to the hog farm, which was another commune where my parents were living while I was in San Francisco. And they were going to be going to San Francisco, so my mom gave them my picture, if you know, to keep a lookout for me. Sure, sure. In San Francisco, so that's how they knew me. But I didn't know that, and I didn't know that I didn't know that my parents had met this man and and these girls either. Did your parents seem favorably impressed by him when they met him, or did they make no comment to you? Um, yeah, no, they didn't make any comment about him to me uh before i met him i i didn't know that i didn't know that all that had transpired yes, or that they yes. had even met him right so um well he's playing the was... guitar and you, you're at this this spiral house and he's playing the guitar was he making eyes at you you know sometimes if people want to be manipulative they can take a guitar and make it sound as though the lyrics are applied to the person they're looking at at that moment. Was he manipulative like that or engaging or even charming? Not, I don't remember that happening. He did hop up right away, though, when, when I came in and the girls said, ah, Charlie Diane's here, came up and uh, offered me a swig of his root beer. He liked root beer. And... Uh, Gave me a big, you know, hug. Oh, so this is our Diane, you know, and which, which just totally blew me away. Now, it it was not that long of a time before he, to use the old vernacular, made a move on you to be with you intimately. Uh, did you welcome that or were you reticent or did you just go along with say, OK, this is unfolding this moment? Yeah, he was. He it was that evening, and he took me under his wing, and you know, down to the bus, and seduced me, but in such a way that it made me, you know, I, I wasn't reticent. I don't remember being reticent. I, I remember welcoming it because he was such a, you know, he was such a sweet and gentle uh, lover. And he, he so he, he was he, he was tender in making love to you. Yes. And so you felt warm and lovely about it. Yes. Yeah, okay. he made me feel very much like a, you know, a, a desirable woman, not just, you know, a, an object. <laughs> so uh, that intimacy that you had with him, was it, was it uh, pretty much a, a regular staple of your life at that time? Because he also had other ladies as well. Was there rivalry or jealousy amongst the girls? No, there really wasn't. We were all, we kind of became like sister wives. Um, no, we it, we accepted share that we were sharing him, you know. And he, of course, you know, psychologically, he was telling us, you know, this is the way you know God intended, and this is, you know, let your inhibitions go, and you know, jealousy and all of that is was was not acceptable. So you know, he he kind of pre-programmed us to not think that way. Although I, I do remember thinking at some point, you know, maybe a few months later, that I wished that the other girls would go away. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, that, that he, you know, that I would have him all to myself. But that was just, you know, a fleeting kind of emotion on my part. Did he withhold affection at times as a, a form of manipulation and, or, or weaponry? You know, he probably did, but I don't specifically remember, you know, okay. any incidences. 
I, I will ask you this, and, and if you're uncomfortable, we don't we don't have to go there at all. Um, you had conveyed in your book that uh, there was a time that you were desiring his attention and uh, feeling a little bit insecure, and you got his attention, and you thought it was going to be a, a regular love experience, but he actually, um, as you described it, raped you, essentially. Uh, when that happened, did you totally lose trust for this man for the rest of the time with him? Yep. What did it, I mean, obviously, physically, it must have been extremely painful, but also emotionally, how was it painful? Oh, I just, you know, I, I like I'd been slapped in the face. I mean, it was really, you know, very disheartening. I really, you know, I, I, I certainly learned my lesson not to, um, you know, reach out and, and you know, try to coerce or, or make myself available. I didn't. Did he become a monster to you at that point, or did you still have an affection and love? Because as, as you recall it, he said, well, let's do it. Pr that's how you do it prison style, was his uh, um, comment. Yeah, that something he made. to that effect. Yeah, and, that's the and way we so did it in prison. from that moment on, were you afraid to be near him? I mean, I would imagine a young lady like you would be, you know, to say, okay, this is not pleasant. It can turn very ugly. And, yeah, um, I no, I just, and, and at that point, at that point, I was kind of. Um, I think I was kind of on the fringe anyway. Okay. So that's interesting. So there were concentric circles going out of who was the most intimate, if you will, of his followers, uh, then the next layer out and what, and did you feel that you were being put out to not say pasture, but you're being put out <laughs> <laughs> as, as banished to the, yeah, to the outer no, realm of his of, galaxy? Because he'd, he'd, he'd wanted to, uh, he wanted me to stay in the desert, and I didn't. I came back, and he was furious with me. And he, you know, he found my parents and tried to get me to go back with them. But there, what, 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 what was going on in their life and where I had already been in my life was just too um, indoctrinating to the whole cra crazy Charlie stuff, and I. I I think I'd just taken too much acid and smoked too much pot, and, and I just wanted to shout from the rooftops, you know, all spew out all of Charlie's stuff about living, you know, in the garbage dump and, you know, just whatever his philosophies. I, I, I just couldn't live with my parents, and so I went, I went, I found my way back to Charlie, and then he took me to Gary Hinman's, and it was, you know, it, it and then dropped I had Gary Hinman drop me off at the Spawn Ranch. I think Squeaky was still there, but the family wasn't living there anymore. They were in the desert and at Gresham Street in the valley. And so I just, uh, after that, I, I think I became a liability. I mean, I ended up coming back mm -hmm. to the family, but I was no longer, which was a good thing. And well, let me look at you about some antics that he would do, uh, as as told by others. He had this thing where he would have people hold each other's hands and uh, kind of have ballet movements and what have you, and he would want you to focus on his eyes. And he would ask questions like, would you die for me? And, you know, you have alluded to the fact that he would do these reenactments 
of being Christ on the cross and go through it in a very realistic way. I mean, Susan Atkins has spoken about that and Patricia, as well as Leslie Van uh, Houten, have all uh, attested to that. Did you witness those occurrences where he's just reenacting Christ on the cross? Yes. How did you feel at that time? Did you buy into it or did you think that even from the perspective of a 13 or 14 year old, did you think this man is not well? No, because with the, you know, but when you're taking LSD, you know, it's kind of like the top of your head is 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 opened up to the universe. I mean, I, it's really, it's hard to explain, but mm-hmm. you you feel like, I mean, there's more to your existence than just you know the day to day life. So you know, every, every... that. that that's how it feels when you take acid. I mean, and so, like, a, a lot of things become possible, and you are very susceptible to um, suggestion. suggestion. Yes, yes. <laughs> Exactly. And so that, he and he would take advantage of that. And so uh, when he would, you know, I, I think I remember him reenacting it at least once on acid, and then, you know, it, it, the power of suggestion. You know, you could see you could see like the holes in his hands you know and 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 like energy coming out so did you see the equivalent <laughs> of what they call stigmata on his hands when you were when you were tripping? yeah but it's okay. a, but it's acid you yeah, it's on, acid you're the power acid. suggestion yeah, yeah. now um, were there nightly lectures uh from from charlie i mean at night what was the the night scene like besides obviously there were you know orgiistic experiences that you all had did he lecture and say, this is the way it's going to be? Because we all know that he eventually arrived at this conclusion that there was going to be a, a race war and that he was the person who was supposed to bring this about because of the Beatles communicating with him. But was there any kind of even informal lectures that he would regularly give at night or would it be during the daytime or was it on the spur of the moment he'd start pontificating? No, mostly, about- mostly in the evening, you know, we'd, uh, after dinners, you know, play music and you know, smoke some marijuana, and he would just, you know, start, you know, doing this philosophy talk, you know, which, you know, he incorporated the Bible, Scientology, you know, Dale Carnegie, whatever. You know, he he would just bring in all this. It was a potluck soup, right, of of everything. Yeah, and he'd weave it all together where it kind of made sense. Now what I want to do is talk about the the uh, nefarious, horrid events that took place um, later. But before we get there, he was basically a frustrated musician, uh, a frustrated artist. You know, as you are aware, Diane, we, we've got this notion in the world that anyone who's an artist is beautiful and loving and wonderful. But I should point out that John Wilkes Booth, who killed Abraham Lincoln, was a, as an actor, but an angry actor. Certainly we know that Adolf Hitler was a failed painter. He also uh, used to torture his friend and ask him to write uh, operatic works for him, even though he couldn't play music. Uh, and we have Charlie, and Charlie wants to very much be a pop star. He has a uh, opportunity to fraternize with Dennis Wilson at one point, and the Beach Boys actually record one of his songs, which is Cease to Exist, which was they changed the title to Never Learn Not to Love. Did you ever see Dennis Wilson? Were you around at that time when he, when Charlie was... Uh... Yeah, I lived, I lived with, the, with the family at Dennis's wow. for a few months. What was that like? 
being oh, was fabulous. It, just a, just a, it was just an awesome house, beautiful garden, beautiful you know trees, and Dennis really admired Charlie. He was proud to introduce Charlie to his musician friends. Wow. And let me just ask the obvious. Why? What was he proud of? I don't know. The, the two were like kindred spirits. You know, they both... Um, I think Dennis had just... Dennis and maybe his brothers had just come off of uh, some encounters or whatever with the Maharishi Yogi. And he was kind of still looking for a guru. And I think Charlie kind of fit the bill. And I think that um, Charlie was going to teach Dennis and was teaching Dennis how to play the guitar. Ah, okay. That's very interesting. But he, you know, I think uh, Dennis was enamored with the fact that Charlie had all these girls, you know. Um, You know, we cooked for Dennis and we went dumpster diving in his roles. Wow. Dumpster diving in his roles. So you would go to dumpsters, pull up in a Rolls Royce, and then literally yep. burrow and, 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 and just look through a dumpster to find things you could put into it. Um, exactly. You know, and it was amazing how much uh, food gets thrown out, you know, yeah. behind the gr- – and if you go at the right time, you know, the stuff will still be cold. <laughs> right, right, right. Now let's talk about the uh, other members of the family. Uh And what I'm curious about is, yes, in one context, they can be murderers and were without question. But in another context, they may have been very amiable, pleasant people. And that's what makes it so terrifying. Uh, What was your impression of Susan Atkins? Uh, Susan Atkins was she she had kind of a hard edge. I think that she um, had spent, uh, you know, some time on the street. I don't know if she'd been a stripper. I don't think she was a, you know, a sex worker, but she was, you know, uh, she was kind of, you know, wild and um, she was very, you know, much a seductress. Okay. (laughs) And I think that, that, I think she also did have a little bit of competition with Charlie. Yes. What about Patricia Kenwinkle? Oh my gosh, she was like the Mother Earth. She was just the most. I I, I still I, I still can't believe that, you know, that she participated. But I think that she. I had this epiphany uh, a few months ago that that they really they had to have believed Charlie was the Messiah or you know in this black white race war. This whole they. All his philosophy that there was going to be this black-white race war that that Charlie had, you know, some kind of divine connection, and that this was supposed to be happening, you know, and and he also, you know, like death was nothing, you know, he would like pound that into us. I think that they just really believed him to a high degree. Diane, I want to ask you: Was there a part of the family members? Do you suppose? that on some level at least wanted to believe that he was the Messiah and hoped that he was the Messiah? Maybe. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, it was a strange, you know, it was a strange time, not just in the family, but that whole 
period of people dropping out and, you know, the whole hippie thing mm. was, you know, it started out very, uh, I think, very innocent and, and, and loving, but... Got twisted. Too much, yeah. I mean, people have bad upbringings and you have bad experiences, and I think that LSD just... Uh, accentuates it. You know, it makes it worse. This is Watching America from WHRV Public Media. Today's conversation is not suitable for all listeners. We'll be right back. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. It is my delight to have Diane Lake, who was a former member of the Charles Manson family. Her book is entitled Member of the Family, My Story of Charles Manson, Life Inside His Cult, and the Darkness that Ended the 1960s. Uh, I've asked you about Susan Atkins. I've asked you about Patricia. Um, Leslie Van Houten, who was otherwise known as Lulu at various times. Um, What was she like? Um, To me, she... She came into the family a little bit later, and uh, she came with Bobby. She was one of Bobby's girlfriends. Mm-hmm. And she had been a homecoming princess, and, you know, I hadn't even gone to high school. So uh, she kind of, I felt like she looked down on me. You know, I wasn't educated or, and and she'd been home. I mean, she just was, you know, the ultimate teenager, homecoming, you know, popular girl, all of that. And that's what she, you know, I think that she kind of flaunted that. Let me ask and, and, and I mean, it probably was as much me as it was her, but that was my impression. Sure, sure. Well, that's valid. Charles Tex Watson, who is probably the most lethal member of the entire family, uh, who was involved with all the killings. Um, what was your take on, on Charles Tex? sweetheart. He was, he was like my big brother. I mean, he taught me how to drive and he, he really looked out, you know, after me. And, and at, at one point he and, uh, Nancy Pittman made some kind of belladonna tea. I think it, this was in a, an attempt to make some kind of drug or whatever that we could mm-hmm. sell at this point. I think that, you know, Charlie was trying to gather as many, uh, resources as possible to make our move to the you know, permanent to the desert. And so I ended up taking care of him because he got really, really sick. But that, but he was, he was like a big brother to me. Well, let's go to that nefarious, horrid night um, in August. And we're not going to stay here because I want to know about your family and and post Charles Manson. But on August the 8th, 9th into the 10th, mayhem killing in Los Angeles. The first night is the Sharon Tate murder um, and uh, friends uh, involved, Folger and and what have you. And then they come back with their tales of of what has happened, what's occurred. And as you have said, they were almost gleeful about it. Is that correct? Uh, I didn't hear about it until we were up in the desert. Ah, so it's much later. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, I I didn't hear anything about it after those nights. All right, and it, it, it was it was you know at least a month later that you heard about it, right? But the first time I the first time I heard about the MERS was from Tex, and that was maybe a week later. 
And did Tex but, tell you details about what he had done? Or? No. Okay. No, 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 no. So you spared no. that. Once you knew what had happened, uh, I mean, I think the average person would feel immediate panic, like I've got to get away from these murderers. Did you feel that or did you just feel um, that, well, this was an aberration, this was a bad side of their personality, but it's not who they really are? Um, kind of like the, you know... Well, they, they, you know, they all said or Tex said that, you know, Charlie told him to. And I think that just all of Charlie's talks had been kind of leading up to this. But I think really what happened was that Bobby Bosley, you know, that I think mm-hmm. that the whatever went wrong at, at Gary Hinman's and Bobby ended up killing Gary and then driving, you know, his car off and... I don't. It might have been a bad drug deal. I'm not the the details. You know, I I wasn't like privy to, but something happened, and um, then when Bobby got arrested, I think that the murders happened to kind of be like a copycat thing, right? Right. Um, to deflect. Um, so it was strategy from 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 Bobby and I think that I I I I don't remember if there was a lot of talk about us starting Helter Skelter until then it was just that it was going to happen and that we were going we were going to the desert when it when it came down we were going to go to the desert then you know the black man would rise up you know be the winner and but wouldn't know how to rule and so that's where, you know, Charlie and the family, we were going to come back and <laughs> help. <laughs> help the black race <laughs> to re- conduct itself, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so he wasn't really a racist. I think this is stuff that he'd heard, you know, in prison for a long, long time since he was a little kid. You know, and maybe it was to put fear in him, mm-hmm. probably. Mm-hmm. But whatever, that was his takeaway from the jail, was that there was going to be this black-white race war. And then when the White Album came out, it was like, oh, tell, tell, you know, I mean, that was like a confirmation. Sure. And I think that's why, you know, Charlie had this kind of psychotic uh, break uh, with reality. You know, the con... It wasn't a con. He started to believe his own hype stuff, you know, yeah, yeah. his his own delusion, or or maybe we put it on him. I I don't know, but he started to believe that, and I think that he started like people that kind of go crazy. They get you know, ooh, you know, the UFOs are talking to them, and <laughs> so here comes the White Album, and uh, there's a lot of stuff in there that it resonates with Charlie about what he's been talking about. You know, I think that was a confirmation to him. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, a lot of self-delusion and uh, with with persons who are um, certainly enamored with their own power and at the same time insecure, there's, there's, it's not unusual for people to have a, a self-reflection of grandeur where they think perhaps a powerful group from Britain is communicating with them, evidently. Let me ask you about what made you decide to turn state's evidence uh, against Charles Manson. Uh, You did, and you testified at 17. That was a very brave thing for you to do, but I would also imagine 
Diane, an extremely confusing thing for you to do because at this point you still have affection, if not love, for Charles Manson, correct? No. No? Uh, that okay. Was, uh, but I was afraid... I was afraid that he was going to uh, get back in my head, ah, okay. you know, when I saw him. But, uh, you know, I'd spent good eight, nine months. Well, I'd been in jail for a couple of months and then, but without, you know, without drugs. And, and then I, then they put me in a hospital when they found out I was 16. <laughs> Did your parents come and visit you when you were in jail? They, no, no, because I didn't, I didn't know where they were. Okay. And they, and they I, hadn't I read in the paper about when you? When I was in the jail, I, no, because when we, we were not arrested for the murders, right. we were arrested for burning this road grader. I see, I see. And okay. so we were in jail, and it was because we were in jail that uh, Susan Atkins had a warrant out for her arrest, and so they sent her to Los Angeles. And while she was in Los Angeles jail, she started telling her cellmates right. about Charlie. And, and the whole... Thing unraveled. The, the whole concept, you know, I guess she thought that the doors, you know, that when when all hell broke loose, that the doors of the jail were going to fall off and that, you know, that she was going to have this merry troop follow her to the desert. I was like, what? I don't know. But yeah, so the, she started, she started telling her cellmates and then, and, and when they realized that she was telling the truth, or maybe was, then they uh, alerted the authorities in the jail, and then we all, uh, us that were still in jail in Inyo County, got taken to Los Angeles to testify for the grand jury. And it was there, that was the first time that I felt safe enough and sane enough uh, and alone to say to the bailiff, well, I'm Diane Lake, I'm 16, and I want my mommy. <laughs> you yeah, know, it was right. like suddenly, suddenly reality, you know, uh, I, I got my head up out of the sand and looked around and went, oh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what, yeah, what, help! And so they, you know, made me a ward of the court. I didn't know where my parents were and made me ward of court, sent me to, you know, state hospitals for observation, and then that turned into like eight, nine months. And then I think, not not that I don't think I needed to be there. They just didn't know what to do with me. And as I got over my psychotic, you know, uh, state of taking too much acid at a young age, that they saw me as a viable witness. And so they didn't want to just you know, release me, and so that, and then Jack, my um, arrest, one of the arresting officers. That's what I want to get to, yeah, because... He, he took me in as his foster child. Now, tell me about that, because I, I think it's important, and you know this, Diane, I don't have to tell you, but for the audience to know that your life is more than just unraveled with... Charles Manson. Um, there is a post-Charles Manson life, which in its own way I find just as interesting. So you have a detective who sees you as a wayward, confused young woman and is willing to take you in with his wife to and help you. And two children. And two children. He, so you've He got... had a teenage daughter and a 10-year-old boy. Now, what caused Detective Jack Gardner and his wife Carol to do that for you? don't know. He he said he saw something in me worth saving. And I think he also, uh, as 
one of the arresting officers of the family up in the desert, maybe you know he had he still had some um, law enforcement you know contacts with Los Angeles, and I don't know I you know maybe he took me in specifically to help groom me to be a viable witness because the girls and text they told me you know their about their participation directly it, so it wasn't just hearsay and i was you know I, I which i didn't really realize how much the family stayed together after that yes yes and actually got new members right i mean they were they were seen on the corners outside the court uh singing songs and and chanting and uh yeah when charlie and charlie X'd himself out. They did it. They did it too and yeah. shaved their heads and, and which just um, added more evidence to the prosecution that Charlie, you know, that these people would do whatever Charlie said. So, Diane, you go yeah. from living um, a, a promiscuous lifestyle uh, with a cult leader who's responsible for one of the most heinous series of crimes in U.S. history you go from that from being in a in a institution for the mentally ill and being incarcerated to going to live with a detective and his family with a with a son and daughter and then babysitting getting a job babysitting for people uh in in the neighborhood from right. one one extreme to the other i mean it's it's just absolutely incredible how did you get your life on track and how did you meet your husband which one? <laughs> okay, well, any of them. How, I, I, I honestly forgive my ignorance. I, I don't know how many times you've been married. No, I have so. a great. No, no, I, 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 it's, uh, I'll, I'll tell you the story. It's, it's pretty awesome. So uh, Jack helped me when I turned 18. You know, I couldn't be his foster kid anymore because now I'm, you know, legally an adult. So, um, uh, but I, I finished high school or, you know, I finished that year out with him. And he helped me get into junior college, and I, I I stayed in a room of one of my mom's friends. And you know, my my mom is my mom and dad have divorced, and she's got a new husband and baby, and she's you know living a more stable, conforming life. And um, so I'm staying at this friend's house and going to college, junior college. And um, Jim, who is my current husband of just a year and a half, we've just been together like for two years now, um, he comes to visit Mary, and a couple of scruffy guys come to the door, and they're looking for me. And so he gets them out of there and turns to me, and he says, you're hot. You you need to get out of Los Angeles. And he was living in Spokane at the time, so he says, why don't you come and spend the summer with me? in Spokane. So I did. When school was out, I, I shipped my bike up because I didn't drive yet. I didn't have a license. So I I went up and spent the summer with him in Spokane. By the end of the summer, we had fallen in love. And he said, oh, instead of going back to college, let's, let's save our money and go to Europe. Let's go backpacking in Europe. So we saved our money. We lived together. We uh, saved our money. And then we, we went to Europe. And we ended up being Euro- Europe for a little bit over two years. And then we came back, and I, we kind of we drifted apart. And uh, I went on to get a job at Barclays Bank. I was a banker for mm-hmm. many for many years, and I met my my husband of thirty five years, 
he's, he's now deceased six years. But I met him in Santa Barbara through uh, through my best friend, and you know, I, he knew my story, and we right. married and had three kids, and then he he died six years ago, and you know, I was lonely, and my mom and Jim's sister ran into each other, and he'd been a widow widower for seventeen years, and I'd been a widow at that point, like for four. And so we got back together, and it was just and the, a- amazing. And so yes, the the, the uh, romance is rekindled. So yeah. So let me talk about your your, your first husband, though, if I may. And and yeah. I want to know more about your second. But let's talk about your first husband. You made the conscious decision not to share any of the Manson history that you had with your children. Oh yeah. No, I, I did not want them to be stigmatized by that. When you turned on television and you saw on you know, any of the the crime shows, the true crime shows, endless references to it. When you're in the house and uh, you turn on the FM radio at the time and you hear Helter Skelter being played, <laughs> how did you handle it? Uh, I know one of the interesting things is I think it was your daughter, uh, you had a kitten and she wanted to call the kitten Charlie and yeah. you, you objected to that. Yeah, a little black kitty. It was so cute, but it was just like, oh, honey, how about, let's, let's think of another name. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, you know, uh, and but I couldn't tell her. I said, no, you can't name him Charlie because, you know, nah, I couldn't unravel all that. So actually, that little black kitty was very helpful in me getting over just the stigma of the name Charlie. <laughs> because... You know, and I had to put Charlie down a few years ago um, because he was 15. But when I heard the name Charlie, I would think of that cute little black kitty. (laughs) It was kind of healing, I guess. It was very, it was very healing. It really, it it really wasn't in, in very, in a comical in a comical way. I mean, it, I was in Sunday school, so I went to church, you know, and I told my pastors because I just felt... So you became a Christian? I became a Christian, and... Let me ask uh, you about that, if I can. Um, sure. Something that I find very, very extremely interesting, and it's been noted by other people. I think I saw an interview with Charlie Rose some time back, uh, back in the day when he was interviewing somebody, and the same subject came up. Religion, Christianity, Susan Atkins, sexy Sadie otherwise, who was both at the Tate and LaBianca murders, became a Christian, uh, a very strong, uh, avowed Christian. Charles Tex Watson, uh, who did the most heinous, continuous killings of the family, became a solid Christian. Leo, or or Lino, I should say, and Rosemary LaBianca, who were murdered on the second night, uh, their daughter called Susan Labarge, became a Christian. She, moreover, contacted Charles Tex Watson, incarcerated, and said, hey, uh, I understand that you believe, I believe, I want to come and see you. And so he met her, and they became friends. Hmm. What's curious about this, I don't know if you know this story, but it's absolutely true, Susan Labarge became and has continued to be a good friend of Charles Tex Watson. Here is a woman who's a friend looking into the face and the eyes of the man that looked into the face and the eyes of her parents and killed them. So in other words, her mom and dad, the last face they saw was Charles Tex Watson. Uh, it, It is puzzling to many, curious to others, 
and perhaps it's, reassuring to a few more yeah. that all this has taken place. It's what, powerful. What do you the, think of this? Belief in belief in in the true Christ is 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 powerful. I mean, love heals a lot. It, it, forgiveness is very powerful. It's really I mean, extraordinary it's, for a woman to can't hold, forgive the killer of yeah. both her parents and yeah. visit him regularly and have an ongoing decades friendship, which she has. Yeah, that's, I, I didn't know that. Um, I, you, I didn't know that they had continued to be friends. I, I know that they'd had some kind of a encounter or whatever, but I, I didn't know they that, that continued. See, I really, I've only read, I read Helter Skelter and I read The Family. Um, in all these years, it wasn't until I wrote my book that I discovered, oh my gosh, there were all these other books. That so you had, you've had no contact with any other family member? You know, obviously, we, Susan Atkins has died, but and others. Yeah, no, but, no, but, but never. You, you never had uh-uh. any contact with them whatsoever. No, just, just recently, I've had contact with the Catherine Share, okay, other, known as Gypsy. And how did that go? Oh, fabulous! Yeah, no, she's totally, you know, turned her, her turned her life around, and she, you know, she she looked out for me. Back then, she was, you know, she was kind of on the outer circle with Charlie. Charlie, I think that outer really... circle seems like a good place to be. Yeah, I think yeah, so. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> he told me to be on the inner circle. I mean, and and the, the, one of the reasons that I w- was compelled to write my story, I mean, my husband was gone, and I I needed, you know, I I, I needed something to hold on to, yes. and here was a part of my life, and I have this, I went through this. Academy with uh, Brendan Bouchard, and he took me through this exercise, and that's when I had the epiphany. Oh, now's the right time to. Now it, maybe I maybe I should write my story, and so I started got a life coach and started doing that. But the whole process um, was was good in, and, and it came about at the same time that these other women, like Harvey Weinstein's, you know. Um, women that mm-hmm. he abused and used, you know, and The Me whatever. Too movement, yes. The Me Too movement, it's kind of like, yeah, if more women tell their truth, maybe, because they were embarrassed. I was embarrassed. I didn't want to be associated with it. Diane Lake, you have now married again. You've married your um, early love, not perhaps your first love. But your early love, and what is life like now? It's very good. We we I'm retired. He's semi-retired. We we get to travel a lot, um, and we just have a a good time together. He can't believe that I'm back in his life, mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, it's it's just been it's been really good i i i'm i'm one of those people that i don't i don't like to be alone mm-hmm. yeah sure sure <laughs> i don't like to be alone but he knows my past he he rescued me you know mm-hmm. uh he he really did because who knows what past or what could have happened to me because i didn't i was still very naive in a lot of ways yes. i didn't realize that people really were looking for me, you right, know, right. and that the family was still like together. Rem- remnants of it still yeah. surviving. And and new leaders, 
were were popping up, and so. Um, and then I didn't realize until I like wrote my book too that you know some of the members in the family they still are you know championing Charlie's cause that he's innocent and mm. um, well let me ask you a question. Well, that's scary. It that's- is scary. It's very scary. In 2017, he dies. Charles Manson dies. What were your feelings when he died and you found relief? Out? Relief. Relief and a certain amount of closure just because there's been, he's gotten, he's gotten more fan mail Mm. than any prisoner in maybe the U.S., but for sure California. And it just like, it just popping up on TV, you know, with this little crazy interviews. I want to ask you about that because, you know, when you watch these interviews with Diane Sawyer or Tom Snyder back in the day or even Charlie Rose, uh, he's very adroit at playing this uh, mind-switching of of issues. He'll start in one track, you think you're following him, and then he comes at a 45-degree angle with something entirely different. And you think, well, wait a minute, we weren't talking about that 10 minutes ago. I mean, how did we get here? And yet there seems to be an insane lucidity uh, to it, there's right. a lucidness. It's it's lucid in an insane yeah, way. Yeah, he could talk circles. He could take talk circles where each little section like kind of makes sense, but it doesn't. It doesn't hang together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just he he made nonsense sound sensical somehow. Right. Yeah. So I I just think it was a great relief, and and hopefully, I mean, and, and then I've done you know a tremendous amount of interviews since. Yes. Since he died, and since the fiftieth, has that been know, cathartic which was, for you? Helpful. Which, which last? It's been, it's been interesting. Uh, I, people love love my book, you know, and 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 say how you know brave and you know courageous I am. But that it was just it. it I just I want to give glory to God. You know, that was why I wrote one of the reasons that I wanted to write the book and, and what has been so cathartic about it is 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 sharing my truth. I, I no longer have this um, thing in the closet that I can't talk about. You know, I was like, because mm-hmm. I didn't graduate from high school, and so, right. you know, everybody's having their 50th reunions and stuff like that, and it's just like I would always, like, you know, people ask me, oh, well, you know, what happened at your reunion? And it's like, mm. <laughs> Explain for me, if you would, Diane, uh, my last question, and that is you said you want to give glory to God in this. What does that mean for you, and what does that glory to I God look like? I want to give God the credit for saving me. For putting people in my path, Jack, Jim, even the hospital, uh, the people in the hospital. I, I mean, I used to be embarrassed to tell anybody that, you know, I'd spent time and, you know, even if they did or didn't know the Charlie story, that I had been, I spent time in a mental hospital. Mm-hmm. But it was back in the day when people could be really helped. I, I learned how to play the flute, which carried me all through high school yeah. and college. And I learned how to crochet, and I, you know, I loved. I mean, so lovely, simple things. And the things. nurturing, yeah. the nurturing of the nurses. And we, yes. I recently even uh, was contacted by the psychiatrist, and he gave all the glory to the nurses. He mm. didn't take the. So I want to give 
glory to God for saving me, for preserving me through the insanity. The, exactly, you know. So I'm 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 very thankful, mm. very thankful for my life, and um, I'm thankful for the opportunity to share my truth with the world. Diane, you are a very lovely person. It's very very clear to me that you are innately a lovely person who certainly out of the gate went down some very strange roads. But I don't hear anything unkind, malicious, even unforgiving in you. And I wish you great success with your book. Diane Lake, the author of Member of the Family, My Story of Charles Manson, Life Inside, His Cult, and the Darkness that Ended the 60s. Diane Lake, God bless you. Have um, have wonderful years and decades ahead with your husband, your uh, reacquainted love, and thank you so much for being a part of watching America. Take care, my dear. Bless you. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Chief of content, Heather Mazzoni. And CEO, Bert Schmidt. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. And I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for your kind and considerate contributions that make this show possible. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.